Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 85 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Thanks for listening and pressing play. It means the world. Today we welcome Tom May from the Menzingers. Tom and I discuss his hometown of Scranton, Pennsylvania, advice for bands getting courted, hint, free dinners, and the Menzingers' connection to the emo and hardcore scenes. Plus, we discuss the upcoming new album, After the Party. You'll notice some beautiful birds in the background chirping while Tom talks. That's called nature, and something that I don't get a lot of in New York City, so I kept it in. This is episode 85 of the Washed Up Email Podcast with Tom May from the Menzingers. Mostly, one of the parts of growing up in Scranton is that it's not necessarily it's not a suburb of any other major city. So there's no like this city that you can go to on the weekend or go to to see shows. Um, we had to build our own scene, and it was a place that was, is, and was uh, on the de- not on the decline, but from a population standpoint, from an industry standpoint, you have uh, a place that has like seventy thousand people, seventy five thousand people. Used to have one hundred and fifty, uh, it's cut down. You know, so every every corner there is a, a church and a and a bar. There's like a somebody figured out the bar church ratio and tried to use it as like a unit of measurement for for these uh, northeast and midwestern uh, kind of rust belt cities that had manufacturing and then left. Um, but for us, we, at first it was the local record store. So there was a, a you had Joe Nardone's Gallery of Sound, which was a chain, and I think might be uh, still a chain. Talked to that dude once in a while. It was, it was pretty cool. That was where you'd go and get the most recent. Um, you know, any type of alternative music, punk rock records you could get. And Embassy Vinyl, somebody, and their, their Embassy Vinyl's logo was just a giant uh, mock of, not mock, but a giant take off the Know Your Rights Clash logo. Oh, very so cool. Place, oh, yeah, like, RJ runs that. He's a super cool dude. He used to let us bring our CDs there and sell them on consignment and shit. Um, very cool. But so we, we did that, and you got your our music from older siblings. You know, I worked. Uh, I got a job as a dishwasher when I was fourteen, and this um, actually rolled in on rollerblades, which is really funny to think about. I was just like, "Hey, I'm fourteen, and it's a legal age to work in Pennsylvania. Can I have a job?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> but I went in, and one of the older persons who was a waitress, it was a catering company. 
she gave me a copy, a tape copy of Plastic Surgery Disasters by Dick Kennedy's, and that was like my first, wow. one of the first exposures to punk rock. Yeah, what a random uh, and intense, you know, first exposure to that kind of music. But so yeah, we get we got music and figured out what was going on from there, and then we kind of came up with the internet. So the internet really started with MySpace and MySpace Music, and um, not Bandcamp, Pure Volume, I think was one yeah, of the definitely, back in the day. Definitely, yeah. And that really kind of put us in uh, connection with a lot of other music. And uh, from then, we went down to this local skate park, and I asked them, can we put on shows there? Uh, can we do? Can we have bands play? So what we'd do is we'd have bands come and play there that we found on MySpace or whatever. And they'd be, okay, well, if you if we put on a show for you, can you put on a show for us in your town? So I kind of like um, just started to connect with people that way, and that was kind of the only way that we really knew what was going on. Besides in Wilkes-Barre and Scranton, there was also a huge hardcore scene and a huge uh, uh, other established punk scene they would put on the shows and, yeah, you know, really kind of... It was random because some bands would be much bigger in Scranton than they were in other cities just because they happened to be the band that came through there. What so, about, yeah. what about you know, that Dead Kennedys, uh, you know, if, if CD or whatever mixtape person got you, what kind of happened from that moment? Were you like, Oh my God. And did you start oh, diving yeah. into, I mean, was it going down rabbit holes for hours? Like why, why did that connect to you? Why didn't you just turn on top 40 and, and be happy with it? Why, why, why did that, why did you go down that path? Uh, I, I guess, uh, because I was angry, uh, when I was younger. I mean, I guess every, a lot of teenagers are, I was really upset. And it, it, it's kind of like when you first, stumble into adolescence you start to realize you know when you start to develop your mind and develop your worldview and you realize that things aren't necessarily as they seem things aren't necessarily you know whether it's politically or socially or whatever uh the way that you interact with people all these things you start to realize that you you get you get a bigger worldview or a more encompassing worldview and i think that that coincided with um being exposed to cynical music like that and just was really like Oh, so these people are saying something that I want to say, but I uh, didn't have an outlet to say it before that. So I kind of, uh, and it was loud and it was fast, and you wanted to break shit and fuck around, and, you know. <laughs> and then was there someone that handed you a guitar? Was there? Did you think like oh, that's what I want to do? Did you play drums first? What was sort of the? When did the sort of the I want to play this start? Oh, so, so I played uh, piano, and I uh, in school I was in. Um, we had they separated kids. There was like uh, you know fifteen twenty percent of the class did violin, and then everybody else did chorus. And I had gotten into the fifteen twenty percent of the class that did violin, and was really interested in music forever for as long as I can remember. And uh, I wanted to play drums first, and you know we really loud drums. My parents did, weren't having any of that. Um, probably partially because I would start things and then just drop them all the time. So they you know. That and also it would be loud as hell and annoy the shit out of them. I have a lot of brothers and sisters, and they're all kind of living in the same house and just be chaos, banging on drums all the time. Which little did they know, a couple of years later, there'd be multiple bands practicing in my parents' basement. So, <laughs> but yeah, but so my aunt had a acoustic guitar that she played at church or something. It was like an old black Fender La Brea, where one of those weird acoustic guitars that had a Stratocaster style neck. And they got that, and then my parents basically said, all right, well, if you stick with it, we'll get it. You know, it'll make sense or whatever. And I got that, and my uncle, Mark, had made a couple tabs. So, there, you know, we didn't have the internet. You couldn't look up tabs, and I didn't have a, a guitar book, so he just kind of, like, drew tabs. Uh, this is a G chord. This is a C chord, you know, and then kind of learned from there. And to the chagrin of everybody, I, I didn't stop. 
<laughs> well, that's great. That's, yeah. uh, the and then f- what are some of the bands that I mean were there were there instantly like I want to be in a band or were you just kind of playing in a room and what what were some of those bands or or CDs that you were playing along to or I learned just by listening like I did tabs but I never really learned to read so it was more of just me listening to a CD and playing it what was your sort of weight of like if it was other than the dead kennys oh yeah totally my uh, uh so there's a piano in my house and i took piano lessons for a little bit and we my brother and i and my sisters we'd sit there and kind of uh play out stuff that sounded like it matched the music on the radio and shit like that we'd try to figure out songs and play it on the piano i remember learning the star wars theme that was you know the best <laughs> day of my fucking life was when i could figure out star wars theme. i think you peaked then i'm just kidding yeah, I think I peaked then. This entire thing has just been kind of a slow cruise downhill, you know, using gravity. It's been great. <laughs> but uh, I remember as far as guitar and uh, like rock and roll music goes, my parents listened to a lot of Genesis and a lot of Billy Joel. So it was like weird 80s, whatever, uh, which I still have that nostalgic love for, for those bands. But uh, I remember when Korn and Limp Bizkit and bands like that started to come on the radio, I had uh, my best friend Nick, his older brother, listen to a lot of that. So he had the actual CDs. So we listened to the radio, and you hear like um, summerly hip hop, and like, anything that was really, really energetic and seemed like a little bit um, angry and vibey, and just like really just when you listen to it, it filled you up with like a almost like a you know like a uh, an energy like a that I was not used to. I remember listening to Corn and being like, "Damn, I want to do that really bad," which is funny because Corn, who I don't necessarily really like anymore. But uh, it was it was the first exposure to angry music that you could hear on the radio. It was awesome. Uh, Frank Turner and I have an episode where we just talk about new metal, and and corn <laughs> uh, gets brought up. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I believe that. And, yeah, new metal was right at that time. It was right like then. I don't know. Yeah, the, was, and, yeah, the, the, you know, the angry white boy music. You know, it was like really got you going. I mean, you guys, especially that time period. You're right. It was MySpace. It was pure volume. You guys kind of grew up comfortable with the internet and i think a lot of bands before you didn't have it then had it and were trying to adapt and you almost sort of started with it for the most part yes it was archaic yes there were you know things that were you know small about it or not small but it was seemed that there was disconnects um i mean i remember when i was at working at equal vision and making a myspace tour page and making the top eight <laughs> you know the bands that were on the tour yeah. and then as soon as the tour's over it was worthless. It was like, what is oh, this yeah. page for? And I was like, what is going on? Like, oh, yeah. I, I remember the uh, political, social implications of the top eight. You had yeah. to like put in your friends' bands or like bands that you wanted to be friends with. You know, it's kind of like uh, that kind of thing. I always laugh uh, at our interaction with the internet and us coming up as a band because the older bands that we've gone on tour with and some of the bands we've looked up to forever and bands that have helped us out and we learned a lot from. They existed in a world where people didn't they didn't have the internet. So you, you uh, there's always really funny stories of where someone would come in and they couldn't find the venue, so they would park on the side of the road and then wait for the Greyhound. Uh, for us, it was a Mortz bus. Wait for the Greyhound bus to come in, and they just follow the Greyhound bus to the station because every punk club was in that section of town that was kind of close to the Greyhound station, and you'd be able to ask somebody where to go. Uh, and like when we first started touring, we didn't have. Um, GPS or smartphones or anything. We used to get directions from someone on the phone or write down, you know, you'd go two miles, set the trip on the car. Uh, you go two miles and you take a right at the big green house. And if you miss the bus that has green house, you, you know, next thing you know, you're an hour and a half late for the show. But for the internet thing, listening to those older bands, 
talk about how they had to adapt when record sales started to drop is really interesting because we've never been in a position where we've made um, any type of significant money from record sales because it's you know, people don't mess, don't buy records like they used to. Uh, and we always think of it as like a graph, and the x uh, axis is our popularity, and the y axis is the amount of uh, records that people will actually buy and it just kind of floats across and it's always staying at the same the same exact uh, cross section so I think we were definitely blessed in that that we didn't re rely from a career standpoint on any any type of thing like that and didn't have to see a decline or whatever but the, uh, you know and along with that that's the the bad but what the good is that we were able to expose our music to so many people the first record label that we got signed to was go-kart records and that guy found out about us because this random person on a message board had posted our record on there, you know, some guy thousands of miles away. And that's, you know, just, just the, that those connections being made and that exposure happening is, so we're definitely just a product of that. I love go-karts just because of uh, Weston, the records that they, the <laughs> Weston records they put out. Uh, I remember, yep. I remember a compilation of theirs. I'm, I'm like seeing the picture of it, but I can't remember the name of it. Um, but yeah, that, that is a, that is an old school label. Oh yeah, they had they had a compilation that had like ninety nine songs. They did like the first MP three CD compilation. Remember they used to sell it on a topic. There was like a hundred and some songs on it, and it only worked in the MP three CD players. You know, so. When I mean, I guess a little bit more about Mentinger's coming together and how. Uh, what was there any thing that you guys all sort of connected on um, when you were you know meeting up? I mean, it's great that you guys have had this long longevity. Oh yeah, we were always uh, good friends. So the jo uh, the drummer, the Joe, I almost said our drummer Joe. <laughs> They're interchangeable. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, more right than you think, Eric. The <laughs> Joey, uh, his, Joey and Tony, their brothers. Uh, he, his aunt, his great aunt, was best friends with my grandmother. So when we were kids, um, I'd see him at family events, things like that. Our families were connected, whatever, back and forth, and then. Um, so, so we know each other for a long time and became really good friends with Eric uh, in high school. And we had another friend, Curtis, who now goes by Curtis Irie. He makes um, like West Indian reggae music in Portland. Awesome dude. We, well, we played in a, a ska band together. And my brother played with Greg in a band called Cosmos. We were both ska punk bands. And then, so, so we were all just really good friends, hanging out, doing that, um, making music, fucking around, doing it against me and choking victim covers all the time. And that, yeah, so, so at first we were all just friends. And I think the great thing that brought us together was we just decided that um, we weren't going to not do this. So we, we, we just didn't accept the fact that we wouldn't play in a band uh, and tour and have a lot of fun and, and do what we wanted to do. So I think that that, that being on, we've toured with so many bands, we've been with so many bands. It's a lot of times you have a band that is centered around one person and everybody else kind of a hired gun or people are passing in and out and they don't necessarily, the, the, the social aspect of their band isn't really the same way as ours where we're kind of friends first and then the band second. Um, and yeah, it's always just really interesting to be on the same page where a lot of bands uh, aren't necessarily on the same page. And I think that, that that's the one thing that brought us together and got us to do it was that we all kind of just were motivated to do it. I mean, we all, we moved down to Philadelphia in the perfect year of 2008, right when the housing crisis happened so we decided to move and and live in a house so there's like six of us in a house and we just would just share meals and do whatever we could till till, till we got there so and then of... for you guys was the everyone was this graduating high school than everyone did or was it just kind of a decision where everybody was you knew this is what you guys wanted to do 
Yeah, we were we, uh, right after we graduated high school. So we graduated high school. Well, right after I graduated high school, Eric and Joe were a grade above me. I graduated high school, and then Greg graduated maybe the year after me. Mm-hmm. Or, I think so. But he lived in a place about a half hour outside of Scranton, um, and Greg, or, sorry, and Eric and Joe and I went to the same high school, Scranton High School, and. We, afterwards, everything kind of in Scranton. It was a place that you used to be. They, there was like some, you know, how they have those bullshit clickbait listicles all all the time. Yes, uh, Scranton. Scranton is on those sometimes in depressing ways. One of them was um, it's the most hungover city in America because of that whole bar bar per capita ratio, which I believe. Except those people aren't hungover; they're professionals. They uh, they uh, you know they're very uh, medium high functioning kind of people. Um, and the other one was the least educated place in Pennsylvania. Wow. Or the least, the least educated per um, capita. You know, I don't even know what the measure was. It was, it was a stupid clickbait article. I'm sure if, if you examine the statistics, you would just be able to tear it apart. But part of that reason was because you used to have very high-paying, um, skilled labor jobs in Pennsylvania, or in Scranton. So you used to be able to go and get a job working for some of the defense contractors that were there, the uh, different manufacturers, and you can go and get $20, $25 an hour at the time and live a really good life. And that started to leave, and Scranton started to become a little bit more bleak. Um, it's, it has a great art scene now. It's a great, you know, think of the bands that came out of there. So there's a lot of great, great bands that came out of there, and a lot of my family still lives there, and it's, and it's awesome. But right after you graduate high school, if you're not in – the college track and, and going straight forward, it can become pretty bleak pretty fast. Um, and we got to the point where it just got really bleak and it was, just, what are we doing? If we want to play in a band, we can't do it from here necessarily because we, we just have to jump into a situation where you're going to shows and meeting people every day and stuff like that. So we all collectively, after a couple of years after high school, decided to just move to Philadelphia. And then for you guys, you know, coming together, what were some of those common bands or feelings that, you guys were friends, but still you were in the same room playing. What were some of those things that you think made up the Menzingers as you guys were making those, you know, first few records? Was there, I always feel like there's, there's like, sometimes I interview bands and they're like Fugazi, everyone agreed on Fugazi or whatever the (laughs) band was. And that was sort of this comfort for what was that comfort for all you guys in that one room when you guys were making stuff? There's some funny ones for sure, man. There's like uh, we like 311 was one for sure. Uh, against me, the Clash. Against me came, I guess, a little bit later. Like, uh, well, no, that was they were right around the time. Like, uh, reinventing had come out, and we had, one of our friends went to uh, juvie for a little bit, and they had a max. <laughs> somehow they had maximum rock and roll in the Scranton Juvenile Detention Center. I don't know who brought that in there. Maybe some really cool like uh, social. Like my sister works in the prisons now. I could see her doing something like that. The uh, that was there, and they had a review of an EP. They had that uh, one of the songs "I Still Love You, Julie" was on it. And that kid, he was dating a girl named Julie, so he got out and eventually figured out how to get his hands on a copy of that song or whatever. And we were like, "Yo, this band's fucking awesome!" So we got really into uh, Against Me and The Clash, and we all played in ska bands before that. So we were all kind of like the Specials and um, uh, Leftover Crack, Choking Victim, you know, Spit Valves, a lot of bands like that. And we all just kind of definitely agreed on them i just had i just had i'm sorry side note i just had like a 10 minute conversation with someone about the word juvie and how there's only a certain number of states that know what that is (laughs) (laughs) and like when you say even think about that yeah well yeah when you say it to some people they're like what i'm like 
I, I grew up in Vermont. Juvie is definitely, you know, oh, got sent up to Juvie. You know, yeah. that's not good. I think you mm-hmm. guys need to have a song. Just thinking here, uh, you guys need to have a song called Julie and Juvie or something like that. Yeah. Juvie and Julie. <laughs> should definitely have something like that. Or at least reference it. You know? <laughs> at least like, reference it, guys. Yeah, the I amount think. of kids that we would, we knew a lot of kids that went to Juvie for, you know, the dumbest shit. and uh, Or not the not so dumbest shit. But yeah, Juvenile Detention Center. Remember, they used to take all the public schools in Scranton you, and when you were in fourth or fifth grade. They would take you on a tour of Juvie. It was like a scared straight kind of thing, and they would like really rile up the kids that were in there. And you'd be like, fuck, I'm not going to Juvie. And then at the end of it, they made you – and this is – actually, I've never really thought about how fucked up this is. At the very end of it, they would, you would fill out an arrest card, so they'd take your mug shot when you're like what? you know, 10 years old, and then you'd put your fingerprints on it. Like you'd roll your fingerprint on the whole thing, and then that would be like your take-home from Juvie. It was like, like a little neat little – yeah. Hey man, I said it was bleak. You know, <laughs> I think I think they also have your records there for when uh, Tom May ripped something off from the liquor store. They're gonna find you. <laughs> yeah, probably. They probably did enter into some you know shady ass uh, <laughs> NSA shit. Uh, yeah, liquid nitrogen cooled supercomputer in Utah they used by the NSA or some shit. Fucking hell. Oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, so, man, I just was talking about that word. Fantastic. We. Uh, I think too that you guys uh, coming together and you know having that like the against me clash, you know uh, the ska stuff. Um, the thing that sticks out to me is how you can uh, s- fall in between so many different scenes. And I mean, I was just trying to look back at all the bands you kind of toured with. It's across the map. It's hardcore oh, yeah. bands. It's punk bands. And and I talk a lot about on this podcast of. There was a certain time period which you guys were sort of at the tail end of it or kind of around it where it was a lot of those package tours and they sounded the same. And was there any – as you guys were playing with all these different bands, was there any – I mean, you guys didn't, but I'm saying was there any feeling in your heart of being like, well, fuck, is, is anyone going to care? Because all the kids were liking X thing. A lot of like uh... – a lot of like – the, the popular alt press and those kind of worlds were into a yeah. certain thing. Totally. To to say that we didn't give a fuck about what other people think is you know, that's a ridiculous thing to say, and you're just an asshole if you if you really believe that. Uh, in my mind, I think. Uh, but we definitely we, we are one of the funniest joke, not the funniest, but one one joke that we always think of is that we're the only band that could go on tour with Propagandi and then a week later go on tour with Take a Mag Sunday, because uh, just what we did. But it's just to, to, to pigeonhole everything, uh, which is, is very, very common, especially at a younger age in, in punk rock and hardcore and uh, these kind of, you know, this DIY alternative music scene is, is very prevalent. People pigeonhole into all kinds of shit, all the subgenres and all the weird shit, which is only, I think, exemplified or uh, uh, expounded upon by people on the Internet and their message boards and the weird shit that they think. Um, but we always try to kind of, as long as, you know, nobody's a scumbag or the, you know, it's not completely cheesy or contrived, you can really appreciate all kinds of music. I mean, it's just, it's just music, you know, in the great scheme of things, we're a bunch of, uh, uh, middle-class kids from America and the beginning of the 21st century playing loud rock music. Is there really that much of a difference between us and, um, like those goofy ass bands that play Warped Tour with double bass and fucking haircuts and all that shit? Like it's not it's not really that different. Um, sure, that we d- definitely don't agree on, and don't want to play with really lame shit or contrived shit or shit that is just trying to make money. You know, like or, or which you know everybody's got to get paid. I understand that, but when you start to do kind of fake art and and be weird about it, that sucks. But as far as it goes, like 
there's no really reason to draw. I think so many people in the punk scene, sorry to get on a tangent. I love so this. many people in the punk scene uh, really get into confining themselves into these weird and, and incredibly rigid kind of scenes and, and ideas of who they are and what they represent or what kind of vibe you get from something. And I think, I think that's uh, really silly. And we've kind of uh, tried to stay away from that um, in some respects. I mean, there's certain tours that we get offered, and I can't. St- well, I could if I wanted to, but I'm not going to say the names of the tours. And we're just like, man, fuck that. No way. The favorite thing to do is to uh, reply to an email from our booking agent, our manager, Tim, who's uh, one of the best people, two of the best people I've ever met in my life. Uh, if they send us like a goofy ass uh, tour offer, we'll just reply with the YouTube uh, a YouTube link to the clip of Will Smith and uh, Men in Black where he just says "Hell no." It's like really elongated kind of thing. Out, <laughs> but <laughs> but besides that, we just know so many of our friends. I know so many people who are so talented. So many bands that are so good, and they seem to shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, chasing some kind of moral righteousness that I think is misguided and just doesn't even exist. It's just it's just really strange kind of um, who's punk, what's the score kind of shit, you know? It's like a very, very, very strange. Lovely Jawbreaker reference. Great job. Um, oh, hell yeah. That gets points on this podcast. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, you guys, because – and I want to talk – there's a lot of kind of things from this that I've thought of, and I think it all sort of plays around the same theme of like you guys kind of came up with the internet. What have you seen as changes as, you know, 10 years later? You guys started in 06, 07. We're now, you know, 10 years later. How is it has, – has, has things to you felt faster? To me, they feel insanely fast. I mean a wrong tweet turns into a whole shitstorm where, I don't know, would that have happened um, I don't think the MySpace message would have gotten through. Um, what What are some of the things that you've sort of felt as things have gotten faster, or you just feel that it's just what it is? Uh, I feel that it is not a dual reality, but it, it creates, it colors the way that people look at reality. Uh, some of these things, like um, the world that you live in, Twitter. Like if you wake up in the morning and you reach your nightstand and you pick up uh, your cell phone and you check your text messages and emails, cool, that's what you got to do. But then you check Facebook, uh, Twitter, maybe Reddit, Instagram, and you, you start to incorporate the things that you see there into the reality of your existence, which you can make the argument that that's what it is. It is your reality. It's not It's not separate because that's what you look at. You know, It's a whole other philosophical whatever you want to dive down into. But I think that the, the what a lot of the social media things have done is given the fools the loudest voice. Uh, I think it was um, Oscar Wilde or somebody who said, uh, and I'm tra- probably misquoting this, I'm just like an asshole, uh, is that uh, pity that the fool is often the loudest and the wise man stays quiet, something like that. So you, you have all these people saying things on Twitter and saying things on uh, you know different social media platforms because they don't have to socially interact with the people that they're talking to. It's kind of like an anonymous push. And oftentimes what gets heard, like think about your you know your old racist friends from high school that say stupid shit. Or think about your, your regular friends who, who jump at any type of... Um, you know, uh, I say left-leaning type of uh, moralistic high ground that they can have just by calling out somebody. You know, call out culture like, "Oh, I'm so morally righteous today because I said that somebody who's obviously an asshole is an asshole." You know, like fuck you. You know, that uh, I think that that has has is just as big of a problem as the other. Almost, it just it, it creates a culture that's just very very strange and very very um, polarized and and yeah, very interesting. Especially like the ideas that someone can say something stupid and then. 
um, sure, people say stupid things. People people might even say racist and awful things. And is the approach that you should take to hate them and tell them that or try to get them to lose their job and, and remove them from society, or should you try to change the way that they feel about this, or try to change the way that they they think about it, or what they say, and, and and love them essentially? I guess. How has the band dealt with social media and? Um, are there things that you're more reserved on or you're not going to say things or you're going to try to, because there is a point where you need to bring people in to make you, to have people mm. feel connected to you because it's harder. What are those, some of those pushes and pulls that you guys do as, as a band? Is it someone, oh, someone in the band that handles X thing or everyone's comfortable with a certain thing? We actually, so we, we exist pretty uh, democratically or you can even say, make the argument socialistically. There's, there's four of us in the band. Uh, we split everything four ways. We make all decisions four ways. If there's a dissenting voice, we have to get it to an anonymous. Uh, sorry, uh, until it's uh, all four agreeing until we do anything. Um, we we uh, all four of us run the social media, which is really funny because you can be like, oh, I could tell who was drinking last night because they tweeted, you know, <laughs> fucking whatever at mm-hmm. one o'clock. That's uh, great. But as far as like uh, the way that we, um. The push pull. I like that he said that. So we we'll definitely push things. We like to be funny and, and try to say things that will make people feel good about themselves. And as far as uh, being righteous, I think that the the self righteous nature of a lot of people who don't aren't experts on situations is misplaced and just adds to a problem. Sometimes you know, like there's there's things reasons that you should be righteous and and call out you know people in the media or whatever or give your opinion. But at the end, it's like. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a, a researcher in these things. I, I understand morally that I feel a certain way, but I'm also not a police officer. I don't know uh, the police officers are involved with certain things. Like we, we try to anything that you don't have full information on, we always try to kind of stay away from it or let it let it exist in its own world until you kind of figure it out. Because uh, people get it, it just. I don't know. It just seems like uh, irresponsible to. We have thirty some thousand followers on Twitter. And that's, you know, whatever. But every time I say something, those people will read it. And there are a lot of younger people who look up to our band and stuff. And I, I don't think it's a really good idea to try to um, mold or, or force people to think a certain way that they, 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 have to, they have to take that journey on their own a lot of times. Yeah. Or only listen to who's, who's loud. That point you made about yeah, people that, that are loud. It, it's so funny where one example that I think people would relate to is or have – I, I didn't realize this until it kind of happened was we were doing these DJ nights and the biggest reaction was the sort of, we call it the money hour saves the day, taking back Sunday, you know, those brand new, like just those kind of bands. And then totally. I remember getting a tweet or an email a couple of weeks later, they're like, Hey, you know, that was so cool that, you know, you played mineral and you were playing some of these older things. And I go, wait a minute, that makes total sense. Yes. Those 20, 25 kids or however many people were screaming along, but I bet there was someone still in there being like, I hope they play Rainer Maria, you know, <laughs> but it's, but it, but it's quieter. Yeah. And I, I've sort of tried to, I call it push pull again. Cause it's like you, you hear it, you hear what everybody's yelling, but you know, in your heart that there's people there that are just, you're I'm scrolling. Tom, Tom may is scrolling through seeing washed up. Email. Oh man, he mentioned jawbreaker. Cool. You didn't like it. You didn't <laughs> favorite it. You didn't, you didn't do any interaction to it, but you saw yeah. it. And I think sometimes people are, and me included react only when something sort of getting those likes or getting those feelings. And I think for you guys too, in social, you might think, Oh wow. when we tweeted drunk that night, that got a huge response, but I bet there's people that still 
will follow if you're just letting people know, hey, by the way, our set time's 10 o'clock tonight. Do you know how many people want to hear that? Uh, oh, yeah. That's Everybody a, that's... wants to know. Oh, totally. I can't uh, throw out the, uh, the, the wonderful and incredible social tool that uh, even, even like Twitter is uh, that you have. Like it's a, it's a lot of power, but it's also it's efficient. I love efficiency. It's, like a, it's a very efficient way. How can we tell everybody that the doors got pushed back a half hour today? Oh, we can just tweet it, and then hundreds of people are just going to know immediately. You know, it's, like it, it's, it's very efficient. It's a very positive thing. Um, I just think that socially people get a little bit too um, – wrapped up in a lot of it. I think that anything that allows a person to act with malcontent towards another person, carte blanche needs to be examined. So like you have a, a, you can't just like get the righteous points constantly. And that's a, and the only reason I'm saying that is because recently a couple people were tweeting at us asking our opinions on certain, um, political stuff. Uh, well, political stuff. Yeah. Political stuff and like scene stuff that happened or whatever. And we don't know, uh, we're very politically uh, involved and very, you know, we always have been, but, but certain things that it's like, why? What the fuck do you care what I have to say about it? You know, I don't need to to bolster and um, you know reaffirm your opinion. Just it just seems really weird. It seems a way that people kind of score a lot of social brownie points and um, at the expense of others. Just a, meaning that if meaning that if they got Tom May to respond to something about a scene or something that happened, they're yeah. going to say that I got Tom May to say something. Totally, or anyone belt. Or, or us just saying it and making it a big thing. Let's say something's like a fight at a uh, show or whatever, and somebody's like, yeah, well, what do you guys think about that? So I wasn't at the show. I don't, you know, why would you? I just think that people add fuel to fires often instead of uh, trying to resolve actual uh, serious issues that need to be, you know, resolved. And you mentioned earlier kind of you guys have been a political band. What about that um, has, has guided you, or how do you, how have you, um, you know, uh, spent or used your uh you know clout for lack of a better word uh in those sort of discussions uh so i guess exposing people to sources of information that they're not normally exposed to mm-hmm. uh, i've definitely been able to talk about certain issues or have a perspective on issues that people don't necessarily have or have seen and you can look it up yourself and be like oh well that's a uh, yeah, that's uh, an interesting approach to that, um, or that's uh, that's how that goes. Um, I mean, Greg has a de- uh, his degree is in political science, and I've spent a lot of time uh, politically involved in Scranton. My uh, sisters and my mom have always been really proactive in certain things. Like my sister took on the um, uh, diocese of Scranton and her high school to try to change the straight-up misogynistic dress code where they didn't allow, you know, just just things like that, just being active, because you realize that a lot of people who say they don't vote or a lot of people who say, oh, I don't care about politics, once say, guess what, man, politics, um, you know, that, that, that sets the pr- price of bread in milk. That uh, yeah. sets your wage. You know, this is like, uh, this is not a something that doesn't involve you, you know. And sure, it's intimidating, especially with uh, the ridiculous nature of... Uh, 24-hour news network at, uh, networks and a lot of the um, mass media that we see is, is you know, completely ridiculously full of shit and maybe always has been. But And that's that's an overstatement, I guess, but yeah. No, but I, I mean, there's this, there's this level of, well, I'm going to vote for the president and that's it, when yeah. you really should probably vote for your city council or for your mayor or for someone, totally. your state assemblyman. Those types of things are probably going to mean more to you than that, that stoplight getting fixed. is not gonna, Barack's not going to help with that. 
um, no. your local person. And also that that level of there's the local news. It's you know the child molester. It's the the, the tree fell down. Um, there's something wrong at the school. That's for thirty seconds, a minute, a minute thirty. No way can they get all the information to that uh, consumer, and that consumer is not there. It's sort of that, you know, uh, versus sixty minutes where they'll have fifteen minutes on something, uh, or or, oh, yeah. or twelve, or you know, uh, just those sort of. But again, it's people not taking that time to be able to learn that if you take a few more minutes and listen, you might actually get the full story on your own versus force fed from a mainstream media uh, yeah totally and that's why well, part of the reason why i don't really blame people uh, or i can completely yeah. empathize and understand when somebody says yeah you know i don't get you know i don't participate in it, i don't want to know or i don't know it's hard to know because it is fucking hard enough uh if you really want to get to uh an unbiased or a balanced view of something it takes a lot of fucking work man and if you're working all day you know you got to go to your job and you go home with your kids like what, what are you gonna do like spend an hour and a half uh, trying to figure out what the real nature of the Syrian conflict is or, you know, who, uh, you really want to learn about Hillary's email scandal and or read the completely outrageous and insane shit that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth. Like, it's... it's. I, I think, too, you... Definitely, you guys being in it for a long time, I think there's people listening that are in bands or starting bands or in, or in smaller bands. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier about having, you know, a really great manager and a really great booking agent what was oh, yeah. what was important um i would say generally when you were thinking about it or what what were you looking out for what were those you know warning signs or what were some of those things that you sort of checked the box and you're like okay this is a good relationship because you know a lot of people get fucked over with bands and people saying you know that the the manager turns into a fanager turns into a damager that's what i always call it like, <laughs> right like, I've not. <laughs> I'm sorry to uh, you know. Uh, I've just never heard that before. That's hilarious. That's really, really it's smart. true though, because I want to be your manager. Yeah. Oh, but they're a fan manager now. They can't really tell you what's you know. They can't tell you the truth because they're your friend, and then they damage you. You're there to damage yeah. you, and you then you're fucked. Totally. I think one one of the benefits of being I'm, I'm sure you can relate from the East Coast, correct? You live in New York or Queens or something. I forget from the podcast. Yes, I live in New York. Yeah. Yeah, there there is an aspect of uh, the way that, at least in my travels, I've found that people on the East Coast kind of uh, are more likely to be upfront with each other than a lot of other kind of like you know what are you, micro like subcultures of other places. It's more of like a sometimes you have a nicety kind of thing. So there's that which we always and come from Scranton, which is kind of like a. I, I really don't want to talk shit on Scranton because it's a beautiful place and I love it, but there's definitely a little bit of like, fuck you, what are we talking about kind of thing, you know. And uh, that was one of the biggest attractions for us to our manager, Tim. Um, that Justin, he was a really good guy. and was straight, he took a, we, we got taken out to eat by a couple managers, which uh, any advice to anybody starting bands, if somebody wants to take you out to eat, <laughs> go, man. Go and rack up that bill, dude. Bring your friends. When Epitaph first took us out in California, which is the first time we ever flew on a plane together, which is awesome. They no flew way. us. Out. Oh, dude, it was, the, it was so sick. They flew us out to California. We got picked up by a guy holding a sign that had our name on it. That is the best. And we just, it was so sick. We were just these like idiots from Scranton that just moved to Philly. You know, we had <laughs> no money. I was a dishwasher making like a hundred and twenty dollars a week or some shit like that. And we go, we, we went there. He took us, picked us up. And then we went to Epitaph, and uh, <clears throat> we they had a barbecue, like an employee barbecue. We all just hung out in the parking lot and smoked cigars, drank beers, and talked shit forever. It was it was amazing. Uh, it was it was definitely a really really cool and interesting. 
um, first experience with them. But they flew us out there, and they took us out for dinner and, and drinks the first night, like some of the employees that were there. And we had a bunch of friends that had moved to L.A., so we just called them up. And we're like, yeah, man, come on out. Like, we're hanging out. They're buying us all drinks. Let's fucking do this. So we had a bunch of our friends come, and we just ran up the, <laughs> ran up the uh, corporate account, I guess, or whatever, the uh, uh, expense account at Epitaph. That was awesome. But, yeah, so any advice to the younger bands? If somebody wants to be your manager or booking agent, and even if they're really awesome and nice guy or a nice girl, and they want to take you out, just you know, run that up because they're not paying for it. It's best. But we had a couple couple people who took us out to ask us to be our manager, and they said a bunch of kind of silly, condescending things, and we could kind of tell that they really didn't really know what they were talking about. How did and, you tell that? Like some band would maybe they wouldn't know. How, what 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 were some things that you noticed? Well, you play in a band. Uh, you know your world. If you're on top of your shit, you can realize when someone's coming over and saying things that just kind of don't make sense. Or making uh, really kind of ambiguous promises. Like, oh, the one dude was like, yeah, so you guys are like right here. And he took his hand and kind of shook it around his uh, chest. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to take you to right here. And then put it like four inches above his head. And just, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? We're in a punk band. Like, fuck off. Uh, but we had so we, we were on tour with a uh, Gaslight Anthem. It was, it was a support tour with them, and we were in Seattle. And Tim Zahotsky, who works for Good Fight Entertainment, who's our manager, he's a he's the best. They, they flew him out there, and he sat down at a table and bought us dinner and was just straight, completely straight up. He was like, "Yeah, I might not do it, but I really think that you guys could do it. I think you guys could get to the point where you're you're making a career off of this." Like he, he didn't blow smoke up our ass at all. He was real down to earth and real chill, and that was when we, we were. And we also vetted him through um, older people that we knew in the music industry, and they were like, "Yeah, there's only a couple people I trust, and it's them, and whatever." So I guess uh, for the the advice part would be somebody that you can see yourself talking to, where neither of you seem seemingly have an agenda, <laughs> mm-hmm. and also um, vet them with other people you know. Be like, "Yeah, what do you think about this person?" You know, kinda, I guess that's how you can you can apply that to any job. But still, I think I think that's I think I'm, I'm, the way that you sort of described it and had those questions in your head. That's really helpful because you know there are people that when the band starts getting hot or you get flown around and you start getting stars and you oh, feeling yeah. like I mean <laughs> I worked at Equal Vision Records for uh, three three and a half four years and I've been friends with them for years. Love the label; it's a dream come true to work for them. What yeah, was it's crazy, awesome. What was crazy is these bands would get signed and they almost just expected they were going to be huge because they were on equal vision. And I went, wait a minute, you still got a tour. You still have to do all those press things I'm making you do. You still have to make a really good video. You still like, and they were, it was this a few, I'm not going to name the bands, but there were just some that were just like, well, we're on EVR now. And I'm like, you are not (laughs) even there yet. You're not even close. Um, It's, it was really interesting. The, I think sometimes, you know, and that was a small indie label. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's definitely- yeah. A lot of bands don't, uh, and it's heartbreaking. A lot of uh, some of my good friends are, you know, better musicians than I'll ever be, and have a, a more, I think, reaffirming and interesting look at the world and their lyrics and 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 the things that they do than I'll ever have. You know, like true, true, like geniuses, I guess, in the word or whatever, and they won't ever be. Have a, won't ever have a lot of attention or won't ever be in a successful band because they don't have they're lazy or they don't uh, you know work like you're saying those bands that just oh I'm EVR now I can stop the big thing with the label is they're going to make an investment in a band that uh, they see trying hard and equaling the investment that the label's making it you know it's like a 
a lot of times people are like, hey, well, how do you get, you know, how do you get signed to a label and stuff? And it's not like that thing you do. Nobody just hears you or sees you at an open mic night or something and, and signs you. It's just that you have to just keep going if you want to do anything. And if you love it, you'll keep doing it anyway. You know, it's like a... Exactly. You're just going to do it to do it. And that's like, oh, man, yeah, fucking kids these days ain't working, you know? Yeah, but. <laughs> the other advice, and maybe, I don't know why this is turning into like um, something like this, but I, I kind of feel like you guys have this, you know, you guys are, you guys are together. You have it you know, on your shoulders. And I think a lot of people would take from this, but that's sort of doing what you want to do and not caring. Um, and if that band wants to sound like that, then sound like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was definitely a, a hard, it's definitely been hard to not care and kind of just go with it and get moments where you're like, wow, this is fucking stupid. What the hell am I doing? Uh, but you can't, there, there's a great, um, so, some metal band wrote this, uh, 10, commandments of touring thing and i forget they're, they're all really really funny but one of them is don't re reevaluate your life in a janitor's closet in oklahoma or whatever <laughs> it's like uh, right before you go on stage have some kind of existential crisis you know uh so yeah it's definitely been hard and it's definitely uh been a, a long you know journey and, and for us and a lot of our friends that are bands but if you think about it, it's not that hard man you know we didn't get a phd and fucking whatever we're just uh, playing music and, and refusing to accept something else. So most of the hard work comes from hard working, but a lot of it comes from the social aspect of like, I don't know, telling your family or someone else like, oh yeah, I, I play in a punk band. This is what I'm doing now. That's so what I decided to to uh, to to venture towards. You know? How does that feel that you guys are doing this full time? You know, you said you were flown to you know your first time on a plane. You're going to Epitaph, and you've got you were a dishwasher, and now you're doing this full time. Dude, it's fucking awesome. It's the best thing ever. I had a, 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 I have a piece of paper that's signed by both myself and my dad that uh, when we were arguing over what I wanted to do when I was younger. And sure, I was completely in the wrong. I know this. But I was talking about, no, I'm going to play in a band. That's what I'm going to do. I was probably 18 or 19. And uh, I was like, all right, Dad, I bet you $1,000 that when I'm 25, my guitar will cost more than my car. And I came down to it. I was 25, and I didn't have a car. So <laughs> I totally you know, won that. <laughs> But, uh, I love that. Yeah, it was pretty great. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's it's it, doing it professionally has been incredible. I mean, we don't make that much money. We don't make a lot of money at all. Uh, but we make enough to live. Like I live in a, a beautiful apartment with my girlfriend in Philadelphia, and all the guys are hanging out, and I can buy Christmas presents and shit. Like life is just, and I get to do exactly what I wanted to do. It's fantastic. It's uh, definitely the, the the dream that we always wanted to live and and kind of realized. You know, it's uh it's definitely definitely awesome it has its ups and downs like anything does but to talk about the downs like every time i listen to a band talk about the downs i'm just like man fuck you dude like the people who are listening to you are going to work as a fucking welder they're paving a goddamn road maybe they're a teacher and they don't you know the kids don't give a shit about what they're saying like fuck you uh so i definitely would never not um try try to not lose track of and appreciation of exactly what we've been able to achieve we just finished recording a new record uh which is i'm I'm so excited about it we spent more time working on it than anything else we're at a point in our lives as a successful band where we didn't have to rent a practice space with nine thousand metal bands and be pissed off and write a record you know like that kind of shit this time we actually were able to just focus and live our lives and and come up with something that we're really happy with, and the way we recorded it, 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 I'm really excited for the world to hear it. And then you recorded with Will Yip. 
Yeah, we recorded with Will Yip at Concha Hocken, uh, which is right outside of Philly. It's like the one of the first towns or cities that's right outside of Philly. And working with Will Yip was incredible. That dude, uh, um, at first, I was, I mean, I got to admit, at first I was a little bit wary when we were talking about recording with him because I was like, man, you mean that dude who records all his emo bands and shit? And then I, uh, like, you know, this is an emo podcast and we're essentially an emo band, but we always try to pretend like we're not. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, uh, well, welcome to the club. But that's everybody. Don't worry about it. No, I mean, Will worked with Turnover, Circa. Like, I mean, some of the, the great sounding, some of my favorite great sounding records of the last. Yeah, few and that years. was the thing is that I had uh, uh, this this immature stigma surrounded by a lot of those bands where I just thought like, oh, well, this person I know likes them, and I don't like that person, so I must not like them, which means I must not like the fucking recording, whatever. And then you know, I grew up and was like. Uh, listen to them. Damn, this shit sounds fantastic. It sounds so good. And uh, he's a really, really cool dude. A lot of mutual friends from back in the day, and when he was in the Philly hardcore scene. And um, he, I, I have to say, he is one of the smartest and probably the most driven person that I've ever worked with on anything in my life, or maybe even met. He, uh, he, he works harder than fucking everybody. It's crazy, man. He, uh, yeah, it got to a point where he was mixing. Our record and uh, Balancing Composure's record and doing other shit to where he was just taking naps. He spent like four or five days or wh- however long it was not fucking sleeping. He would just take naps and then get up and work. And that dude just works so hard and is so knowledgeable. And so and um, on the other side, he's such a positive and really like uh, – so recording bands is you record, cool. You have to have technical knowledge. You have to have the, the music theory knowledge, all that stuff. Then there's a, a whole psychological aspect, which mm-hmm. is shoot. It's like you know, fifty six percent of the whole thing, and nobody will get a better take out of you than Will. He like comes in, he's positive all the time. He can be a cynical motherfucker, but who isn't? Uh, and he comes in and just gets you gets you going and makes you believe in yourself in a way that I'm just not used to. I never saw somebody work that hard and that great before. He's a really, really, um, really interesting person to me. You know, you ever read that book uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? No, my dad told me to. It did read it. It's, okay. it's it's one of the the, the best books. I'll I'll send you a copy after we're done recording this. Send me uh, your address and I'll, I'll send you a copy. It's uh it's such a good record. And it's such a like a or, sorry not a record. It's a book. To, it's <laughs> such a good book. It's like a self help book, but not really. It kind of just uh, lays out different aspects of different um, performers and scientists and things and and all the factors that boil in to making them that way. And Will is a fucking outlier, man. He's like a. a Somebody that you're just not used to running into. One of one of one of four or five people you might meet in your life is a really really uh, great experience. What else? Yeah. What else is on the horizon that you know? Obviously, I'm not telling you to give away secrets. But what are some of those things that you guys have talked about in the van, um, in between shows? Is there anything that you sort of were wow? We really want to do that next, or wow, that crazy idea, or like you know, going to a different country or working with someone else? Was there anything you guys have sort of thought about for the next? Phase. Oh yeah, I think we're gonna start. Uh, uh, myself and my friend Andy started a, a, a studio in South Philly. Uh, it's attached to our practice space. It's like we record a lot of our friends' demos and some EPs and shit like that. And I think that we're gonna get into a point with uh, with our band, the Menzingers, where we um, ourself we're using different technology to write songs and, and using our own resources to kind of put out a lot of random covers and acoustic versions. And I think that that is all going to open up a whole new door for us, uh, which we talk about sometimes. Generally, oh, I love that idea. 
Yeah, using using technology for our benefit, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, We're also you guys are able to. You wake up on a Thursday and you're like, oh wow, yeah, we oh wow, we all love that song. You want to record it tomorrow? Sure. Yep, and we've done it before. <laughs> we've done it a couple times already, uh, where we've had like a bunk practice or we had a writing practice where we just weren't clicking with anything. We're like, fuck it, let's learn this and record it. Done. You know, maybe someday it'll come out. Whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that's the the new dimension for us. Um, and then I didn't ask this, but um, you've made jokes about it, which is fantastic. That's what I want. The You guys are connected to the scene, emo, the revival. You're sort of intermixed with those bands, I think, just happenstance. Are there thoughts that you've had about it, that word, that sort of phrase? I mean, me, it was, wow, punk rock bands um, are always been around. They just happen to write really good records right now, and people are finding out about them. Um, it's not to say just because the if uh, if Stereo Gum or Pitchfork stops writing about it, it's not to say there's not a great band in a, in a basement right now playing music. Um, how have you sort of felt as this sort of, I mean, the scene itself sort of got propped up by a few... Um, the independent scene, not not specifically the word emo or you know that word. Sure, uh, I, I think you can, you might not necessarily be able to have one without the other. Uh, so the word itself has always been, um, you know, it's, it, obviously words mean different things for different people. Um, emo for us was always like the kids who were like when we first started, we were punk as fuck, dude. It was like as punk, you know. Not to bring up that Jawbreaker song again. Well, to bring up that Jawbreaker song again. Please do. Uh, what's the score? You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> who could be more punk than the other? You know, we were always calling each other posers and like, you know, talking about that's not punk. Yo, fuck you. Uh, back and forth when we were younger. And to, at that time, Emo was the start of like, um, it was like Brand New had just released a record when I was in high school, I think. And it was kind of becoming bigger. And the kids that we knew that liked Emo, we would like make fun of them because they didn't you know, do as much drugs as us or get in fights and shit like that. We'd be like, yeah, you know, you fucking whatever, emo kids. So that always stuck that way. And then more modern times, uh, like you're relating to the independent scene, with uh, which is normally referred to as like the independent emo scene or whatever. We are uh, really good friends with a lot of those bands. We'll definitely bust some balls sometimes because people will say shit that's so like um, sad or self-deprecating that you're just, or fake, you know, when somebody talks about like, oh man, my life is whatever, I wish I didn't do that, you're like, you didn't do that, you grew up in fucking Connecticut, so, you know, get out of here. Uh, but that's just, you know, being, being uh, not letting people in and trying to have a hard skin, it's not true, because those bands, those bands are incredible, all the bands from Run For Cover that are emo bands are, um, that we had definitely made fun of amongst each other, are incredible musicians and good music and it's good bands, and that scene itself has become... Um, something really positive for people everywhere. You know, you have, uh, there's bands that are playing in Philadelphia in front of 1,200 people, you know, selling out 1,200 cap rooms that are making this music that we, um, you know, it's essentially DIY music and uh, that is making people feel good about themselves and uh, relating. And it's it's definitely a, it's definitely a very interesting scene. We um, have been residually, like you said, we or like well, I was saying, before we've been residually associated with emo forever and uh one of our favorite things to say is like oh yo we're not an emo band we're a punk band or whatever but i mean it's to go back to the pigeonholing it's kind of everybody's doing the same thing saying about the same shit because you don't wear the same branded clothes or tour with another band or whatever doesn't make you that much different than each other you know so yeah uh, well the other uh, part you you mentioned you know feeling good 
And I, th- I even yeah. I, I, I wrote this today on all the social networks, and it'll sound outdated when this is out. Doesn't matter. I wrote <laughs> I wrote emo is not sad. It's actually pretty uplifting. Signed every emo band. It's yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's commiseration or, it's, uh, or it, empathy. So. Yeah, and it's like it's not it's not sad. And that that whole notion of um, you know cutting and that whole notion of um, you know suicide and 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 those sort of thoughts. I think that was so fleeting. Like that time period where that was mentioned, and every other time it was just you were commiserating with somebody else about something, and you actually had a band to listen to. Um, that made you sort yeah. of happy. And I think you kind of saying that again, you're totally right. The bands today are, you know, it's about feeling good. It has nothing to do with negative or uh, anything self hurt any or self. Uh, I can't think of the word, whatever, you know, uh, Deprecation, yeah, you know? yeah. Any of that, that's not about. No, totally not. I, I mean, maybe some of it is at some level, uh, but the, the overall, you know, the overarching theme, the overall thing is that you go there people go to shows, people listen to these bands to feel good about themselves. And any song you you listen to should make you feel good about yourself, even if it feels good to feel bad. You know, it's like thinking about your own funeral. Find me one person who doesn't think about their own funeral once in a while, you know, like some kind of weird, twisted... What's your uh, song? Like, oh, I wonder who would go, you know, that kind of shit. Oh, my funeral song? song? Yeah, yeah, what's your funeral song? Oh, man. Let me think. Uh, I've I've, I've thought about it. Which one? Uh, oh, you know, I actually have thought about before. I have thought about before. Definitely, what a wonderful world. Uh, Joey Ramone's version. Oh, that is uh, well. That's that's the first song I performed live at a talent show. No um, shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On on awesome. on guitar, like freshman year or something in high school. Um, I'm sure it's on a VHS tape somewhere. But yeah, um, that 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 I think that's a good one. Uh, yeah, I think I like that one. I, I like that one, and I would also want all my friends to. Um, Get hammered and put on uh, "Barroom Hero" by the Dropkick Murphys, uh, which has always been my like, go-to <laughs> joke song. Uh, not joke song; it's a great song, fantastic song. But nobody needs needs to learn the words beforehand. Everybody just has to mumble mumble them along. I think that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. So now we have it on audio form. So yeah, now we're all set. So when that, when that day, which will be hundred years from now. <laughs> You mean, uh, unless we reach a singularity, my consciousness gets transferred to a, uh, uh, some kind of you know, hard drive that floats in space, you know, that we can do. Cool, well, thanks so much for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Washed Up Emo Podcast. If you want to support, head on over to washedupemo.com and buy some buttons or stickers or head over to our Threadless store, washedupemo.threadless.com. We have shirts for women, men, children, plus framed art, pillows, and I shit you not, shower curtains. Styles like Make Emo Great Again and In Kinsella We Trust, your home emo needs are all there. Even easier and less expensive, you can leave a nice review on iTunes for the podcast. That is always, always appreciated. Finally, reach out to me anytime on any social network. You know them. Or shoot me a note, admin at washedupemo.com, admin at washedupemo.com, and let's chat. See you next time.
Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years, or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening and for this current episode you're about to hear. I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also reprinted Volume 1, so you can order both. Check out the DIY publishing at anthologyofemo.com.